0: Shalom, I'm Monty Judah with Lionel Land Ministries, and welcome to you joining our program, The Expectations of Jeremiah. We are in the midst of a study of the book of Jeremiah, and at the moment we are in chapter 23, and beginning at verse 25, we're going to dive right in uh, as we continue to study the book. Uh, in verse 25 of chapter 23, it says the following, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart? The I have had many conversations with people who come up and say, well, I've had a dream, and they don't seem to understand there's some rules uh, given to us in the scripture with regard to how you interpret dreams and how you interpret spiritual insights in the case of dreams joseph is the one who has given us much instruction because joseph had dreams that came from the lord and one of the things that he taught us is you got to have the dream at least twice to, so it's determined of the lord otherwise if you have a single dream And you begin to act on it. It could be, as I always say, it could have been just a little too extra, too much garlic in the spaghetti sauce the night before that it was stirred up your stomach and caused you to dream. Um, and you know that unsteady sleep, you know, where you're disturbed and so forth, it'll cause you to dream, uh, from it. But a dream that comes from the Lord has purpose and plan. And those that have that testimony of it, They have some specific criteria that they can justify why they believe that that has come from the Lord. The basic principles of sharing the truth is, as the Lord has said, that on the evidence of two or three, you will establish the truth. In other words, a single report, a single thing is insufficient to call it the truth. So if a person comes in and says, I had a dream the then um, you know how do you, how do you know it's for sure now you'll note he said i had a dream i had a dream where he's trying to claim that there's confirmation he's trying to claim i had the two dreams even then you still have to examine what was said and still confirm it the if he, he may believe he had a dream from god but is it really a dream from God? Is it really a message from God? That still has to be determined by it. And a lot of people will—they get in an atmosphere of other brethren where everybody is doing this. Everybody is, oh, I had a dream for you, and I have a word for you, and I have, and and so forth. Like there's all this incredible spiritual activity going on. And this is when deception can take place. This is when huge mistakes can take place. And Jeremiah's warning against getting caught up in that kind of thing. Generally, when false dreams and false reports come in from the Lord, it's usually about positive things. Most people don't come and give you a false prophecy about something bad's going to happen to you or about God's going to judge you. They usually come and say, oh, no, you're going to get a blessing or something wonderful's going to happen to you or things like that. So you always have to be just a touch skeptical if somebody comes up and, quote, pronounces a word from God upon you, and it's supposed to be you're going to win the lottery or something like that. You need to be a little bit skeptical about that. Uh, and that's what's being expressed here by Jeremiah. Verse 27, who intend to make people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The emphasis on false prophecies is not to draw you closer to the Lord. The emphasis is to move you away from the Lord based on that topic, to focus on that topic and lose sight of the Lord. Can I tell you that there's a lot of different folks that I have met who have these very interesting quote? I'll I'll use the term insights that they think they found something that is really significant, that's really special, it's from the Lord. They 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 find it to be very compact, captivating and so forth. And if you look at the subject, and if you just step back for a step when you first are hearing it, is this topic moving me closer to the Lord, or is this? topic actually distracting me from the Lord and that alone usually can be a a simple criteria that will am am I being led away from the Lord or am I being encouraged and strengthened in my relationship am I being edified in the Lord Um, and that's what he's basically saying here that the, the prophet Baal would take you away from the Lord And prophesying in that way. Verse 28. The prophet who has a dream may relate the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steals my words from each other. Um. Let me kind of explain this as as best I possibly can. There are going to be moments in your life, and I I can identify with this, I've had moments in my life where something gets spoken, something is said, something happens, and like that, you know that was from the Lord. It's not even debatable. You just know that you know that you know. And the Lord is saying, my word is like truth. Truth doesn't need to be explained. Truth stands on its own legs. And my word is like a fire. You know, when a fire, it instantly gets reaction. You know, you hold your finger there and you light a fire and I guarantee you're going to get an instant reaction. And Sometimes you'll hear something from the Lord and you immediately get the instant reaction. It's not something you ponder. It's just, it's there. And then he equates it like a hammer. The moment that the hammer makes contact, I mean, there's sudden impact. And the word of the Lord has that kind of power. It has the kind of power that when you hear it, you know that you know that you know it's the truth. It's like, Instantaneous reaction to fire. It's an instantaneous reaction to like the strike of a hammer. It, it has impact immediately. He's saying that's what his word is like. He's, and the obvious inference here is that, that the word of false prophets doesn't do that. It might confuse you. It might misdirect you. It might mislead you, but it doesn't have that kind of impact. Verse 31, Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, the Lord declares. Now, that's the most obvious one. The Lord declares this, and therefore what follows is directly from the Lord. And, 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 and by the way, part of the definition of a false prophet, let's say you're going to charge somebody as a false prophet. The, you're looking for, when did the person say, the Lord has said this? Okay. And by the way, uh, I've even been accused of this. And let me tell you about that for a moment. Here I did a Bible study. I drew some conclusions from the Bible study and I said, I think this is what the scripture is saying. These are the principles involved. This is, this is the logical conclusion I've come to. And so I go and share that. I share the results of my study. And because they dislike what I said, then they accuse me of being a false prophet because I said the Lord declares that. I never said the Lord declares that. I said, this is my understanding of what the scripture says. This is what the scripture says. Now, did the Lord say those things that we're talking about? Yes. Did I declare? In other words, did I say, announce to you and go, All right, I'm getting ready to give you some new information. This is from the Lord, new information. You won't find this in the Bible. You won't find this having spoken. And this is what the Lord had to say. Now, that is prophesying. And if I say, this is what the Lord said, and the Lord didn't say that, then that would be a false prophecy. But if I'm referring to what the Lord has already said, And you disagree with the conclusions of what the Lord has already said and so forth. You can't call me a false prophet. You can't call somebody a false prophet just because they're repeating what the Lord said and they came up with a different conclusion than you did. So this is a case where he's trying to explain the false prophet is going to claim the information I'm giving you is completely new information from God that you don't previously have, and the scripture's not revealed yet. And this is particularly testy when it comes to the subject of the end times. The fact of the matter is, God's pretty much already given almost all of the prophecies associated with the end times. We don't need any more new prophecies. We need to understand the existing prophecies that he's already given. And he has said of the prophecies that are already given, Behold, I've told you all things in advance, so you might believe in me. The whole purpose for the prophecies was so that we would trust the Lord even more. If a person comes up and says, thus declares the Lord, and he makes a statement, who is he asking you to trust? The Lord or him? If he's asking you to trust him, that should be a clue right off the bat to you. That should be a clue uh, as to what is going on there at that point. Verse 32. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit. Hear that last phrase? They don't give any benefit to the people whatsoever. God's prophecies do benefit the people. It's just an exercise. It's like red wheels. It's like an exercise in futility. It's like it's meaningless, some of the stuff that gets said that's claiming to be of the Lord. Verse 33. Now, when this people, the prophet or a priest, asks you, saying, What is the oracle of the Lord? Then you shall say to them, What oracle? The Lord declares, I shall abandon you. Then as for the prophet or the priest of the people who says the oracle of the Lord, I shall bring punishment upon the man and upon his household. Thus shall each of you say to his neighbor and to his brother, What has the Lord answered or what has the Lord spoken? For you will no longer remember the oracle of the Lord because every man's word will become the oracle and you have perverted the words of the living God and the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you will, you will say to that prophet, what has the Lord answered you and what has the Lord spoken? For if you say the oracle of the Lord, surely thus says the Lord, because you said this word, the oracle of the Lord, I have sent, I have also sent you saying, you shall not say the oracle of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I shall surely forget, forget you and cast you away from my presence along with the city, which I gave to you and your fathers and I will put an everlasting reproach on you and on everlasting humiliation which will not be forgotten. Okay. In this particular case, here's what Jeremiah is saying is if you get all of this activity going, you get this this false word coming and we and we're using all this credential the oracle of the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. What has the Lord said? You get this confusion going. To such an extent that it all turns into vain stuff. And it actually diminishes when you have a real word from the Lord that comes for the people. Because you have filled it all up with all this other nonsense that's going on. And as a result of you have, it's a little bit like, let me use this word picture here. Let's say I have a, a small pond of water. And you, it's clear. You can see down into the pond. You can see the vegetation and the fish. And so you, 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 have clarity in the water. But let's say that we're going to get a bunch of false prophets in there and they're going to be yik yakking at each other about the whole, the Lord has said, the Lord has said, this is what the Lord said. What, what has the Lord said? It's a little bit like going into the pond, this little pond and taking a stick or your feet and stomping around in there and stirring all the mud up. When we get done, There's no clear water. It's just all muddy. So there's no whatever was the pond before. The clarity of the pond has been lost. You just stirred up a lot of muck. You stirred up a lot of mud. And now it's of no benefit to anyone. And what Jeremiah is saying to these false prophets as a result of doing that, says this reproach is going to be upon you. Everlasting reproach. You're going to pay the price of this forever. You, in humiliation. You're going to be humiliated and shamed for doing such a thing. You have muddied the waters, so to speak, for everybody. So nobody can get anything anymore, you know, out from it. All right. Chapter 24. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away, captive Yechoniah um, and the son of Yehakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and brought them to Babylon, the, uh, and, and the Lord showed me. Uh, let me start over. Um, and the all, officials of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me. Behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like the first first ripe figs, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to the rottenness. Then the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? And he said, Figs, the good figs, very good, and these bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up, and I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. But the bad, but like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth, as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall scatter them. And I will send the sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they are destroyed in the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. All right, so we have this interesting, again, uh, like when Jeremiah was told to go to the potter's house, this time he says, I want you to go and check out these baskets of figs. He said, what do you see? He said, well, I see one basket of really good figs. I see another basket of really bad figs. They're all rotten. He says, all right, what I'm telling you is this, is the good figs, those are some of the captives of Judah that are going to go to Babylon, and I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to bring back the captives. In other words, their sons and daughters are going to come back. That family will come back to the land, and sure enough, Seventy years later, the remnant of Judah came back. But did you know that there were some that stayed there that didn't come back? There's some who became entrenched in Babylon. Scripture tells us that they were merchants. They had businesses. They had established themselves. They didn't want to go back to the land. Uh, The good figs are the ones that come back. The bad figs are the ones that Rottenness, they can stay out with the nations. Well, the same thing too is if you go out of the land and you're scattered in the nations and you don't return, you're the rotten figs. You, you, you deserved it. Now what makes this particular scenario so interesting for us is if you go back to the Torah, there's a specific provision in the Torah as to what every man and every head of household is to do when they first go into the land of Israel. The provision calls for the, for first fruits to be brought before the Lord. Essentially, you go into the land of Israel, you have your first harvest. And let's say that you had some fig trees and you collect up a basket. Are you ready for this? A basket of those first fruits. And you're to take them to the temple, and you're to make them a gift. And by the way, it wasn't just animal sacrifices that were brought to the temple. There were people who would bring baskets of vegetables, and other plants, and other first fruits from their gardens and from their crops and their fields and so forth. Uh, Fine flour was brought. Flour was brought. Grain was brought. All of those different things came, and they were used as a part of the temple service. Many times these were the foods that the priests ate while they were doing the service uh, of the temple. They made breads out of them and all of the assortment of things. And it is the call of every person in the land of Israel to bring a basket of first fruits. Well, what he's doing is he's keying off of that provision in the law, And he says, now, obviously, somebody came and had a basket of good fruits, good first fruits. But somebody else came and they gave a basket of rotten fruits. Now, why would somebody bring a basket of overly ripe, rotten fruits? It wouldn't be because they harvested them late. It's that they harvested them, but they didn't immediately bring them to make them a gift. They sat in the basket for a while. Because the person was not that quick to go give his gift. He was maybe kind of going to hang on to it. And then when it started to turn, he said, well, I better hurry up and get this in there before they're completely bad. So there's a lot going on in this story. And the thinking of those that get cast out of the land is they've really been playing games with the Lord. Not really doing what the Lord said, not putting their heart and their zeal into what the Lord said, to bring the first fruits, playing games with that, playing games with the gift to the Lord. And the Lord knows it. And he's saying, I can tell the difference between the, the good fruit that's brought as the first fruit and I can tell the fruit that you collected, set in the basket, debated about whether or not you were going to go to, and then you finally came and brought it to me later. Um, Giving a gift after the fact, you know, is not very good. I saw a man one time, I actually witnessed this. Um, A man came uh, to the camp, and there were brethren, and they had been a little bit contentious and the the younger man wanted to to um kind of make amends he wanted to put his best foot forward with the fellow he wanted to get back on good terms with him and so when he came he brought him a nice bottle of wine nice gift you know brought him you know enjoy enjoy a bottle of wine here at the camp you know one evening with you and your friends or family or whatever and and he gave him the gift. Now, the fellow who received the gift took the gift, but he was still holding the man in a certain level of contempt and disdain. So he turned around, and he took that bottle of wine, and he went up to somebody else, and he gave it to them. Gave them the bottle of wine, making it sound like he had given a gracious gift to him. The problem is the guy that got the the second time the wine knew the, about the special wine that had been selected by the first guy. So were these really, did he really give an honorable gift? Obviously not. He treated with disdain the gift that had been given by the other man who was putting his best foot forward and rejected him and refused him, although he took his gift. Then he turned around and devalued it by claiming to give a a valued gift to somebody else. But the problem is the truth came out. Do you know what happened as a result of that? The fellow who acted so obstinate and diminished the gift by giving it off to somebody else, he didn't come back to the camp again when he was found out, too embarrassed. And everybody else held him in complete disregard. This man is not genuine. He's not sincere. He is obstinate. You know, he he cannot forgive. He holds grudges. And, and on, by the way, he also gives inappropriate gifts. Now, if the man had first said, I don't want to receive your gift, you know, look, I'm got, i at odds with you. It's not appropriate for me to receive your gift. That would have been something completely different. But he accepted the gift. He led the first man to believe that he had received the gift had worked. And then he turned around and proved how he dishonored the gift. Um, When the Lord was telling Jeremiah about, look at these gifts, that are being brought, because it tells you a lot about what's in the heart of the person. And that's the reason why we're asked to bring gifts to the Lord. That's the reason why it reveals the heart of us as to where we're at. I'm sure you're familiar with the, the gift of the widow's mites, how the Messiah took comment on her gift was greater than all the other gifts. Because she was giving out of her need instead of out of her abundance. In other words, that she really needed this, so it, her heart was way more into this than where the others who had plenty of abundance and were sharing a little bit from it. It's about the heart. One of the principles that I have taught about giving, and I'll repeat it here again because it has, it ties into this. The value of the gift is determined by the giver, not by the person who receives it. The value of the gift is determined by the giver. So what is the value of the gift of the Messiah to us? Is that determined by the people who receive the gift of the Messiah, the forgiveness of sin? Are we the ones who determine the value of the gift that God has given? Or is it that God has determined the value of the gift? And I submit to you, it's God who's determined the value. He's the one who purposed to give us his son for our redemption. We aren't the ones who determine the value. If we were, we would be in a lot of trouble with the Lord. Because the fact of the matter is, we receive the gift of the Messiah, and then we turn right around and misbehave. Which would, if we're the ones determining the value of the Messiah, we would be diminishing him. We would be devaluing him. And oh, by the way, that's even more egregious than the original sins that we committed. When you go to share a gift, you're the one that's going to determine the value. If you're giving a gift out of obligation, well, everybody's done, i got to give one too. You gave nothing. If you're giving something that's from your heart, I don't care what the gift is, it's of great value that's been given. Um, You know, there's a story uh, told, uh, it's kind of a joke about the difference between men and women. little boy goes out and he finds two sticks in the street. He nails them together. He takes that. He goes into dad. and He says, "Dad, hey, guess what I made for you." Here, here, and the the dad immediately goes, "Oh my gosh, what are these two sticks? Where'd you do it? Get them out of the gutter. Get them out of the house." The mom, on the other hand, sees the two sticks and says, "Oh my goodness, you've made something for me. I love you, you know, and so forth." What really took place there was the the value of the gift being determined by the little boy or was it been determined by the parents <clears throat> the man and the woman the answer it was still value it was determined by the little boy it was just that the father couldn't see the value of the gift from the little boy the mom could the mom could see the value that went into it the dad couldn't he just looking at the object of it that's the reason why you can see people who receive very expensive gifts versus inexpensive gifts. I can assure you that inexpensive gifts can be of far greater value than expensive ones. That's the reason why we have the little story about uh, smaller gifts are usually more valuable because smaller gifts, there was somebody who really put their heart into it as to a big thing. I'll just give them a big thing and That'll do it. No, no, no. But the smaller one, you had to choose. You had to pick it out. You put your heart into it. The whole point is this of of what I'm saying here. When you go before the Lord, the Lord is more concerned about what's the value you're putting on it. What When you come to me, when you come to worship me and you come to present a gift to me, are you putting your heart and your soul into this or are you just... You were expected to do it, and you came brought them. I submit to you that God looks on the heart. He wants to know, where is your heart at? I hear your voice, but do you have a heart that matches your voice? You have come and presented a gift. Is your heart giving that gift, or are you just doing what was expected or what you thought was satisfactory, and so forth. How would you like to go and take a very, very sophisticated, say, college class? Learned a lot. Very complex. I mean, you really had to work hard at it. And when you get done, the instructor gives you a satisfactory instead of an A-plus for your effort. I'm I'm here to tell you, you earn the A-plus from your heart. The other guy's version of satisfactory is meaningless. That's his problem, not where you're at. That's the reason why the instruction is given to us. Whatsoever you do, do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord and not unto men. Because God looks on the heart, and he sees the value of the gift that you've given. So do it wholeheartedly to him. And that way it comes across. The results, the difference is whether you bring a basket of good figs or you bring a basket of rotten figs. They're both figs, and they both got brought in the basket. They all got presented to the Lord. But one is good figs and one is bad figs. And Jeremiah uses this example to explain how God regards the people that have come before him and those that brought the good figs, he's going to do special things for them. They, yes, they're going to go in Babylonian captivity, but he's going to be bringing them back. The others, they're going to go in captivity, they will not be coming back. Um, very powerful picture that's given to us. Chapter 25. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Joachim the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word uh, of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened." And as a result, you've heard many of the things that he had to say that the people didn't listen to. Saying, turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke them me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, uh, hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant and will bring them again to this land, and against its inhabitants, and against all the nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them, and I will make them a whore, and a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy, and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones, and the light of the lamp, and this whole land shall be desolation, and a whore, And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Here's the prophecy that said they were going to go into captivity for 70 years. So now, why 70 years? Why in the world 70 years? Why not 50 years? Why not three generations? Why 70 years? It's actually in another place that we learn this. It's in actually in Second Chronicles, the very last chapter, chapter 36. There's a repeat of this and it says the reason why there's 70 years. Because in this year the children of Israel had been in the land for 490 years from the days of when Joshua and them crossed over. And never once had they ever kept the sabbatical year, and given the land of Israel its rest. 490 years every seven years, that would be 70. God's judgment upon them for all that had been going on, the one that really tipped it over the edge was the way they treated the land. It's one thing for them to misbehave, but to abuse the land. he wasn't going to put up with, because the land is for all generations. They can abuse the things for themselves, but the land is for all generations. And so the 70 is actually based on they had not kept 70 sabbatical years, and that was their judgment. This is a very interesting uh, thing because the uh, this is an evidence to us that God plans judgments out And it's a reflection on what has been happening in the past. There are a lot of end-time prophecies that are predicated on past commandments of the Torah that have been disobeyed. And that's part of the reason why we're going to have the judgment, the nature of the judgment. Uh, In fact... Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, now look at the judgments that fell upon Egypt in the wilderness. Look at the different tests that they did and the different things that happened. He said, because that same thing is going to be happening at the end of the ages. 1 Corinthians 10. It's going to be happening at the end of the ages. And Jeremiah demonstrates it for us here with past misbehaviors and what happens to them in that day. This is a, this is a, a, a biblical pattern. This is part of the midrash, the principal part of the scripture and the principles of God. And how he, This is how he demonstrates how he has planned things and he carries out a plan. Verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity, the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting devastation. You do know that after the Medes and the Persians came and wiped out Babylon, uh, historically, and the remnant of Judah got to return to the land, Babylon has never been since. It's been a, a desolation ever since. In the land of Iraq... Um, if you remember the ruler that we used to have there, Saddam Hussein. One of the things that Saddam Hussein decided to do while he had absolute power over Iraq, he decided he wanted to rebuild Babylon. He wanted to rebuild the city and and put it back in its former glory. And he went off and began doing it. But, But there's a scripture that says that will not happen. There's a scripture that says it'll be a place for jackals, you know, to roam and so forth. And I remember when he made the announcement he was going to rebuild it. I was thinking, well, he's not going to last very long because that's contrary to what the word of the Lord says. Lo and behold, guess who gets overrun and taken captive and wiped out? The guy trying to rebuild Babylon. Because the prophets had said it would be an everlasting desolation uh, from it. There's a couple of interesting things throughout world history and uh, as to that we watch that are consistent with that. Let me give you one other quick one since uh, we're on this topic. In Jerusalem, in the old city of the walls, of the old city on the eastern side, there's a gate called the Golden Gate. It's the gate that is the most uh, direct from the east that takes you into the Temple Mount. It's, it's all it's all filled in. I mean, you can see the outline of the gate, but there's stones in it and put into it. One of the things that was prophesied, and I believe it was by Isaiah, he said that that gate would be closed because of the misbehavior of Israel, and it wouldn't be opened until the Messiah opened it and walked through it. Very powerful prophecy. The gate is still stoned up, still closed. And, but the Muslim world, when they heard about this prophecy, they of course don't want that gate to ever be open because they don't want the Jews to ever have a Messiah or a Redeemer like that, Messiah King. So you know what they decided to do? They decided to put a Muslim cemetery on that slope there in the Kidron Valley to block that gate with the idea that a Jew would never walk through that area. That would be an unclean area for a Jew to walk through. So there's no way the Jewish Messiah would ever open that gate, contrary to what the Scriptures said. So they go back and forth against each other, thinking they're going to defeat each other on these prophecies. However, they forgot one thing clearly it says the Messiah doesn't go through the gate until after the resurrection. So all those cemeteries that are there and so forth, those people are all going to get resurrected, some to go to judgment, some to life. And the ground is going to be clean when the Messiah walks through there and opens that gate. And that's how the Messiah is to enter Jerusalem for the first time when he establishes his kingdom, is to open that gate and walk into the Temple Mount uh, from that there's a series of those different things that are given through us by the prophets. And Jeremiah has given us one with regard to the Babylonian thing, uh, which are just absolutely fascinating to study and see how they... We can see examples still to this day of many of these different things. All right, so back to Jeremiah. Uh, verse 13, And I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, all that's written in this book, which Jeremiah had prophesied against all of the nations. For many nations a great king shall make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made the nations to drink it to whom the Lord sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah and its kings and its princes to make them a ruin, a whore, a hissing, a curse, as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all the people, and all the foreign people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the, all of the land of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Akron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, and the kings of Tyre, all of the Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands, which are beyond the sea, and Dedan, and Tema, and Buz, all who cut the corners of their hair, and all the kings of Arabia, and all the foreign people who dwell in the desert, and all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, and all the kings of the north, far, near and far, one from another, and all the kings of the earth, which are upon the face of the ground, and the king of Shelok shall drink from them. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it will be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall surely drink, for behold, I'm beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name, and shall you completely free from punishment. You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord God. Before we go any further, you know what Jeremiah has just said here? He said, you know what? God is going to use all these different peoples to oppress Israel and the people of Israel. God's going to use them to punish Israel with, but he's not giving them the authority to do harm to the people of Israel. Yes, he can take them captive. Yes, they'll be used for judgment, but they do not get to hate the people of Israel. That if they go too far, if they hate the people they hate whom the Lord has chosen, then I, the Lord, will be bringing judgment upon all those nations just like I did on Israel. And he goes through this entire list. He goes around the whole perimeter of Israel, all the nations around him, to the north, to the east, to the south, off to the west. And he announces to all of them, all of you, and by the way, when I get done with all of you, it'll be all of you. I will judge all of you. This is the basis and the authority for the day of the Lord. This is the basis and the authority for why God is going to carry out a day of the Lord and have a great tribulation. Because the people of the nations throughout the years have hated Israel and the people of Israel. Um, We hear of anti-Semitic things that happen all the time. They don't realize that they're bringing judgment upon their nations. God does not forget that stuff. And he is already through the prophet. That's the reason why Jeremiah was the prophet, not only to the house of Judah, but to the nations. He pronounced judgment that would be upon Judah. He also pronounced judgment, ultimate judgment that would be on the nations. And that's part of the background of how he restores Israel. He judges the other nations when he brings his people out. And separates them uh, from there. Verse 30. Therefore you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, and utter his voice from his holy habita- habitation. He will roar mightily against his his foe, and he will shout like those who tread the grapes. And all against the inhabitants of the earth, a clamor has come to the end of the earth. Because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. And as for the wicked, he has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. This is the rationale of the day of the Lord. Now, a lot of people aren't familiar with this, but you can follow up on this. And and what I'm getting ready to say to you is very clearly said in the book of Revelation. Did you know that the book of Revelation says that in the days immediately after the tribulation, just before the day of the Lord hits, in those days, just before the day of the Lord hits, it says God is going to speak one more time like he did at Mount Sinai. It's actually called the seven thunders in the book of Revelation. And this time he doesn't speak from the mountain, he speaks from heaven. And it's not just the shaking of the mountain, he shakes the entire universe and the entire earth. And he makes these seven pronouncements of judgment, I believe. Now John, in the writing of the book of Revelation, was forbidden from writing down what the seven thunders said. He was told that in the days of the seventh trumpet, that that's when that would be heard and that's what would be done. I believe the seven thunders is what this verse is talking about. I think that before God actually does the day of the Lord on the whole world, he pronounced seven judgments against them, and he says, why I'm going to judge all of you. That every person in the world, just before the day of the Lord, actually hears God say, this is what's going to happen to you, I'm the one that's doing it, and this is why I'm doing it. Let me read again the words to you. The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all Of the inhabitants of the earth. The book of Hebrews says. Yet once more. Will I shake not only the mountain. I will shake the heavens as well. One more time. I'm going to talk to this people. And you're going to hear the voice of God from heaven. Literally hear my voice. And. I'm going to tell you. The controversy I have with all the inhabitants of the world. And what I'm going to do about you. And so when the day of the Lord hits, there won't be anybody standing up and saying, gee, I wonder what's going on today. What is happening? Everybody will know because everybody will have heard the Lord say what is happening that day. Uh, I don't know of a more absolute way to carry out the day of the Lord and the final judgment of God and the thing that Jeremiah is doing is he's expanding from the judgments that come upon Israel and Israel being ca- taken captive. He says, those the, by the way they treat Israel, that's going to extend, extend to all the nations of the world. Thus, Jeremiah truly was uh, not only a prophet to the house of Judah, but to all of the nations. And this is another one of the reasons why that they thought when Yeshua came, that he might be Jeremiah, come again to them. Because what did the Messiah talk about? Judgment that would come upon the entire earth. He talked about that kind of judgment. That's the kind of judgment that Jeremiah had talked about. Judgment on Jerusalem and judgment upon the whole earth. Um, All right, so that brings us to uh, verse 32 of chapter 25. And in our next session, We'll start with verse 32 of chapter 25. Shalom to all of you.